All right, good stuff. Good job. Good job. If it's your first time and uh, you didn't know we did that, you now know. And uh, so next week, hopefully it's less awkward if we can convince you to come back. But um, here's what we got. A couple things for you. Um, if you are new or if you still have questions or if you have a prayer request, you've been coming to church forever, um, fill out a little info card for us, name, email, whatever you'd like to sign up for and or have us pray for. Um, you can just do that, drop that off in any of the offering boxes we're located on the sides or at the Connect Desk on your way out. If you're uh, not the type that likes to, to write anything but you enjoy reading, uh, we have a document that is a who we are, what we do. So if you're new to the church and just have a couple basic questions, we've got a couple basic answers for you. You can take this on your way out, find that all over the place, and, uh, and read up, okay? Um, last thing we do before we kind of jump into uh, the Word of God is we pray for another local church here in the city of Flagstaff. And this has uh, been a big thing for us. We've been doing it uh, since we started. The thrust of it is this. We believe that we were called here to plant this church three years ago to be part of the gospel answer for the city of Flagstaff, uh, but we realize we're not the whole thing, okay? And so we pray for other churches we know, uh, respect, love, and know are preaching the gospel. And so I'm going to pray for my friend Landon and Covenant Church. On uh, October 30th, they had a, a huge event in the Sunnyside area called uh, Monstrosity, where they just had a bunch of the local kids come in and have this great night where they uh, celebrate this kind of fall festival. And they're just really praying for fruit to come out of that. And so I want to pray for Landon, the preaching of the gospel this morning there, uh, and for that continued fruit to come to bear over at Covenant. So let's bow our heads. Let's pray for that, and we'll pray for our time. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for Landon. God, thanks for uh, God, his love of you, his love of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continually teach him, shape him, mold him to be more like Christ. God, that he would preach boldly this morning, that we would see fruit come from their ministry, specifically the one they saw just a couple nights ago with kids uh, that maybe were just maybe for the first time, God, uh, having the opportunity to hear or uh, catch a glimpse of Jesus and the gospel story. We just pray that you would do something special with that seed. Uh, God, grow it, water it, and might it come to fruition, and might there be a great harvest amongst that community and within their church. God, thank you for them. We pray blessings over them this morning, and, and as well over ourselves. We open up your word, God. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word. God, you are the one that comes in and transforms our hearts, renews our minds, and so we depend on you this morning to do those things. God, we lay down ourselves that we might take up you and your cross and your cause and your mission. God, for the sake of your glory, our joy, and the love of our city, Flagstaff, Arizona. God, would you bless us this morning? In name we pray. Amen. All right, a couple things. Uh, I just want to do a couple announcements. First, you might have seen a table set up on the way in with these guys. Anybody know what this is? Operation... Christmas child, right? So usually I am uh, a firm no Christmas before Thanksgiving guy, okay? And so if you are a Christmas before Thanksgiving person, we're not going to be friends. But um, this is really important to us. We did it last year for the first time. Hey, don't even worry about it. Hey, Danny, or James, you're good, man. You're fine. Just have a seat. Yeah, don't worry about it. All right. Uh, sorry about that. So this is a little box. We have you guys fill these, and then we're going to give them to a distribution center who gives them to kids around the world. Um, there is a, in every box that you'll pick up on your way out, there's a packing list of what can go in this. Last year, we, uh, we were able to put together, I think, 52 boxes. Uh, I'd love to double that number this year. I think our goal should be 100, and so we have about 300 people or so that call this church their home church. I think one-third of you welling up in generosity seems, uh, seems doable, 
okay? And so if you'd like to participate, here's what you need to do. Grab a box on your way out. Do not take one if you won't fill one because we only have limited numbers, okay? So grab a box on your way out if you'll fill it. Bring it back November 15 or November 22 filled with the goodies inside that we will then pass over to be given to children around the world to bless them this holiday season, okay? So November 15 and 22, bring this back to us um, and, uh, and let's bless some kids this Christmas, amen? Can we do that? Yeah, okay. Um, Last thing is today we have a Roots lunch that's happening. If you're not familiar with Roots, it is a monthly lunch that we do for anyone who is new to the church or interested in asking deeper questions or what does it mean to be plugged in, okay? We will feed you, and then we will spend about an hour together talking about the church. What does it mean for us to be on mission in this city, and how can you be a part of that? So if you want to sign up uh, and you haven't over the last few weeks because you weren't sure you're going to be here or whatever the reason was, you can sign up today still. I just need to know, like, ASAP, because right when service ends, I'm going to go get the food so that we can eat together and enjoy our time. Okay, so if you want to be part of that Roots Lunch, just stop by the Connect Desk on the way out. I'll be there. I'd love to meet you, talk to you, um, and get signed up, and then we'll go do the class. It's from 12.30 to 1.30 today at the Redemption offices, and I'll give you all the details of where that's at. All right? Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll be in verse 53 this morning. And let me talk about last week, because uh, I heard a lot of positive feedback, not necessarily about my preaching, but about what God did with last week's sermon. And so last week we sat in the Garden of Eden with Christ, and we asked him to convict us and to shape us, to make us more like himself, that we would then go. What we saw is this story of Jesus in the Garden praying to his Father in heaven and saying, God, this burden, this, this thing that you've called me to, it, it's, it's too much. Uh, could there possibly be, could there potentially be another way around this? Could we find something else other than me going to the cross, having the cup of God's wrath poured out over my head? Is there any other way? And we see God answering this prayer with a no. We see God answer this prayer by bringing about Judas, the betrayer, to come and arrest Christ. He goes away three times in the midst of all of this. You have his disciples who he's told to stay awake, to be alert. And yet he comes back each time and there they are sleeping, right? There they are passed out, snoring, snoozing, away from forgetting what God has called them to. And our call was, what does it mean now for us in the fact that there's probably some, uh, some crossover to the church today to say, it's probably time we wake up. It's probably time that we stop saying, okay, someone else will take care of this. It's probably time, it's probably time we stop saying, well, you know what, Jesus, I, I'm not in the mood, or I'm too busy, or I don't have time, or I don't want to give this up or that up. It's time to wake up and be the church. And that was kind of our call last week. And I want to say to a lot of you who I had really good conversations this week, thanks for responding. Like, thanks for really sitting in the weight of Christ our Savior putting something on our plates that we could not deny, okay? We bring all of that thrust into today. So what I'm also always fearful of when we preach and we get into the word is that we get convicted in a moment, we go and we live really excited for Christ for three days, and then we leave everything we learned behind. And we can't do that. So everything, all that thrust, all that movement, all that momentum that maybe was built last week, we need to bring into what we study today, okay? And that's my... That's my hope for us. So what we're going to see today is what I've labeled the two trials, okay, the two trials. So here's what we're going to have. We're going to have a trial of Christ before the religious elite, before the Sanhedrin. He will stand on trial before them as they try and convict him of sin and, and reasons why to kill him. On the other hand, we're going to contrast that trial with the trial of Peter, 
And now Peter is not standing in a legal trial in this moment. He's not before any government official, but rather he stands trial before the public as they try and call him out and ask him, are you with Christ? Are you a Christian? Are you part of his crew? And we'll see what, how he responds in the midst of this. Now, the reality about Jesus is we're going to find out, and it's the same as last week, is that he's not guilty, but he's sentenced anyway. Okay? Christ is not guilty, but he's sentenced Anyway, what we'll find about Peter today is that Peter is guilty, but he's not sentenced. Okay. So that's the juxtaposition. That's the first contrast. Almost like We have Jesus, the most blameless, spotless person to ever walk the face of the earth, not guilty, yet sentenced to death. And then this man, Peter, a follower of Christ, guilty of all sorts of things, and yet no sentence for him. Okay. Now, I've been on both ends of this throughout my life, and maybe a lot of you have as well. And I was thinking that through that this week. Like, if I ever been charged with a crime that I did not commit, and, uh, and I thought of a good one. I actually thought of about 15, because I grew up with a brother who was seven years older than me and felt he could do and blame anything he wanted on his little brother. And so often, often, I would come home from playing with my friends, and my parents would sit me down and they'd say, why did you do this, Vince? And I would say, I didn't do that. And Peter, and I hope he's listening, would say, yeah, you did, and he would usually say some other things, and then he would call me out and place all the blames for different things that he would do. So he would throw a party at the house, stuff would be broken, oh, Vince did it with his friends, okay? And my parents, and they're amazing, wanting to believe my brother, uh, just blamed me, okay? And so in my heart, I'm thinking, I hate you, and and then in my heart, I'm thinking, but I didn't do this, right? Like, th this wasn't me, and yet I'm going to have to suffer the consequences for my brother's sin. Right? I I'm going to have to bear the weight, and, and it varied between what the consequence was, uh, but I would have to bear the weight for someone else's burden, someone else's problem, someone else's sin. This is what Christ does for us. Okay? And on the other scope, I thought to myself, well, is there ever a time then, but then I stepped into the shoes of Peter, and I did something wrong, and yet someone else was blamed. And then I remember this story of when I was a little kid at daycare, and I was walking around, and some kid was getting lippy at four years old, and so I said, not going to happen to me, son. And so I crushed his beautiful plastic egg that he had brought to playtime, okay? And I stared and looked down at him, you know, even though we are probably the same height, but I looked down on him. Um, and then the teacher runs over and says, what happened? And I said, that guy did it. And I, and I blame my friend Brian, okay? And, and Brian suffered the consequence of, of my sin, okay? Um, and so I say these two stories that I want us to really step into in this moment how we can get this. We, we get the injustice of the fact that, that someone would own someone else's sin, Right, like someone would, would own someone else's problem. All across the news, you're starting to see every once in a while a new story uh, of, of a convict who's been in prison for 30, 40, 50 years. And then new testing comes out, right? They finally can do DNA testing, and it comes out, and this poor man has been suffering in prison for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, yeah, it wasn't you. Sorry about that. Our bad. And then they kind of throw some money his way as if, like, at 80, you know, $200,000 is really that important. 
so, so we can understand a little bit to kind of step, because I don't want us to divorce ourselves from this, this moment, the weight of this situation where Christ, the Savior of the world, who was perfect, experienced the greatest injustice that there was to experience, which was taking someone else's fault and putting it on his shoulders. Being convicted for sin, he did not commit himself. Okay, and so that's what we step into. Christ goes to the cross, we go to freedom. And we'll talk about the implications of that in just a minute. All right, so verse 53, Jesus' trial first. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So here's, here's what's going on. They just had arrested him in the garden. Okay, They bring him now before the religious elite, and they say, okay, we're going to put you on trial. We're going to try and convict you. Now, we know from Old Testament that in order for a conviction to stick, there had to be at least two or three witnesses. It could not just be one. And so they start gathering these witnesses to say, hey, what did you hear about Jesus? And what did you hear about Jesus? And how can we convict him? Meanwhile, Peter, okay, meanwhile, Peter, and we learned last week that most people seemed to run away, but Peter actually decided, you know, I'm actually going to go to the courtyard. I'm going to go into the court. I'm going to have this interaction. We know this because we see it here. We even see what he's doing more in the Gospel of John. John, having friends within the Sanhedrin, within this courtyard space, could go in, probably brought Peter along. There they are. So oftentimes we see Peter as this great coward, but at least he went, right? At least he's here in this moment to sit before and say, okay, what's going on here? Let me, let me see what's going on with Christ. And so we have Peter sitting by the fire, and so his trial will come. Now, the people that are putting Christ on trial here are truly the people that in our entire gospel story should be the people that should embrace his reality. See, see the people that are saying, okay, let's get witnesses together, that are conspiring, and these are the people that should say, welcome, Messiah. We've been waiting for you. Thanks for coming. You will now deliver your people. We are excited for this. But instead, the opposite happens. What I think, and this is where it applies to us, what I think was going on with the people, and we've said it, I think, multiple times throughout the Gospel of Mark, is they didn't really have that big a problem with Jesus himself. They had a problem with what Jesus was doing to their kingdom. They had a problem with the fact that Jesus' kingdom was infringing upon their own kingdom. They had problems that all of a sudden, you know, this guy's telling us and shaping us with what our lives should look like. And I think we bring this to today, and this is just a stark reality for the church all over the world to say, man, sometimes we're really fine with Jesus, but when he begins telling us how to do things, then we get a little flustered. Maybe we begin to recoil a little bit. We say, well, he's good, but I don't know how good he is. If he's going to ask me to let go of this, he's going to tell me to give to this person. He's going to call me to do these things. I sit down with a lot of people, and we get to meet, and we get to talk, and I often say, well, when's the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? And they're like, oh, I I didn't know do I have to do that? I'm like, yeah. Like, that's, that's, part, of the, that's part of the negotiation, right? I was just like, this, this is what it means to follow me. Here, here are some of these things, and he lays out this stuff. And part of it is, yeah, you're supposed to tell people about me. Right? Like, I, I gave you a voice. I gave you a life that you would go and proclaim this to the world. And I think it's a problem of expectation. I think it's a problem of expectation. I say this often here, but expectation can ruin us. 
Because the reality is if expectation is here and anywhere reality comes in below expectation, the gap between those two things is where all the brokenness, pain, sin, and hurt in your life are. Okay, so, so if you expect this and reality is this, all that brokenness is somewhere in this mix. You thought God was going to do this, but he came in here, and so you're frustrated with God because he didn't meet your expectation. And I think as a church, and not just here, the, the community of God around the world, we've set an expectation for what it means to be a Christian that the Bible does not set an expectation for. We've said it's going to be far easier than I think it's supposed to be. We've set an expectation that, no, you don't need to do all these things. It's just about this. And it's not. See, see, being a Christian, the expectation is, no, it is faith alone. Hear me. It is faith alone that justifies. It is not works. You're not saving yourself this morning. But it's because of that faith then that we go. And it's mandate after mandate after mandate in Scripture that this is the way we live. So coming back to the trial. What we have is this guy, this Savior, this Jesus, who's just always done it right. That any weight that we might feel, and I know I felt this week as I began to think through, what does it mean for me to follow? What if I was on trial? Like we'll see Peter be in just a moment. What if people were asking me about where I stand on certain things about Christ? And where would I land? I I realized, man, not only would I fail, but man, Jesus fulfilled everything single purpose every single time. The perfection of Christ has to be a foundational principle for us as Christians because it's in the gap between him and us this morning that we truly get thanksgiving. So when we sing before service, when we sing at the end of service, if when Christ came in and he changed your life and when he died on the cross and he rose on the third day, if that's, just, if that's just a neat story about a guy who did something nice and not the story of the perfect God who died for someone who's exactly the opposite, then yeah, don't sing. Don't, don't, don't get excited to come here Sunday morning and, and sing songs to a God. Don't get excited during the week to open up your scriptures. If you're not excited about the reality that you're studying this story about a perfect man who died for you, a sinner, a broken sinner who had no reason to be associated with him, if that's, then that, that's what leads to us saying, well, I don't need to tell anyone. I don't need to get in the scriptures. I don't need to live a certain way. I don't need to love my neighbor. I don't need to be a great employee. I don't need to on and on and on. We just skirt these responsibilities because I don't think we honestly get this picture of a perfect man who gave his life up for a bunch of imperfect people. We've got to embed that in our hearts and we got to get it. Let's keep going. Verse 56. For many bore witness, a false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And since some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so again, nothing's adding up. They needed two or three witnesses. They're not getting it because everyone's coming with a different story, and it's just not working out for the religious elite here. 
They thought this would be easy. Let's get them in here. We'll convict them. We'll be fine. And the big charge is about the temple. So in John 2, 19 and 21, this is actually what Jesus said about the destruction of the temple. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay. And so on trial, they bring about this charge. He said he's going to destroy the temple, and he's going to rebuild it in three days. Two things I think that they're frustrated with here. One, you don't destroy the temple, okay? Okay, this, this is like a big thing to the Jews. Don't go destroying our place of worship, the place where they think God lives, okay? The second part, though, too, is I think in the second half of that little clause there of, and he's going to raise it up in three days. I think they're already thinking here, yeah, by which power is he doing this? And I think they're trying to label on him some things that they've already labeled on him before. He does this by the power of Satan. He does this by the power of demons. He's a witch. He's all of these different things. And so they wonder, yeah, he's going to tear this thing down and build it up in three days. How could he possibly do that? And yet we know that Christ, what he actually said, he said, no, here's what's going to happen. The temple, my body, will be destroyed. Yet in three days, it's going to raise up, which is Good Friday, Easter Sunday, right? This happens. And so this is the charge. And here's what I wonder is just how often are we just this close to getting what he's saying, but we just miss it. I, like we, we kind of, we've, we heard him say something. We've, we've, we've heard little bullet points from scripture. We've read certain things. We've read through text kind of quickly. And we're like, I think it says this. And so I'll apply it this way. And we haven't put in the time to say, no, what, what is it really saying? What does this really mean? And so I was uh, hanging out at a local coffee shop in town the other day, and uh, there was a gal talking to her friend, and, uh, and they're talking about, about Halloween and, uh, and, you know, like the things they were going to do for Halloween and, and what they were going to wear and how are they going to go out and all of this different stuff. And then the, the, gal, the next gal asks, to, you know, asks this other guy, says, well, you know, like, is that okay that we do that? You know, is that okay that we, we do this? And the girl said, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know why? Because the Bible says that no one can judge us. The Bible, the Bible says, like, there's no judgment. And the other girl was like, sweet. And so I didn't follow up, right? And I didn't get names to see, well, how, how'd it go? But this is one of the classic ones, right? Well, the Bible doesn't call us to judge. It's like, well, that's just not true. We do judge one another. In the church, we judge one another all the time. We do it in love. We do it in grace. We do it in truth. We care for each other. We seek the best. We believe the best. All of those things, but we certainly judge one another. And yet we skirt this one because it's easier for our kingdom and the world and the lives we want to build. But when we finally start getting confronted with the truth and we stop kind of skirting this and that, we have to start owning up to what does my life look like? And if I were put on trial, what would I respond with? And what does that mean for me now? Okay. And this is the questions I need us to ask as a church. Let's keep going. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So first of all, the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, just silly, okay? 
because he's quiet for a while. They're asking him questions. There are all of these charges against you, and yet you are not going to respond. He stays silent before his accusers. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53, who says that before, uh, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so Jesus opened not his mouth. Upon accusation, he remains quiet and says, no, I don't need to answer your inquiries. I don't need to answer your charges because a truly guiltless man need not respond to false claims. A truly guiltless person doesn't need to defend himself. And so Jesus takes this and then sits, but then all of a sudden there's one question that comes up and he finally answers. And the question is very straightforward and to the point says, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. He says, I am. So, so the question to me, for me was, man, why now? Why is he silent this whole way? And then all of a sudden, this question is the one that causes our Savior to break his silence. And I think it was the first one that finally, the first question, the first charge that he was actually guilty of. He didn't need to defend stuff that wasn't true. But he was definitely going to defend and back up and stake his claim. Yeah, I'm Christ. Like, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm God. And in two ways does he reference the Old Testament to a Jewish audience who would know what he's talking about. First, using I am was extremely important. Using I am was extremely important. You go out all throughout the Old Testament, God often, I am, I am the great I am. In Exodus 3, as God calls Moses to go and take the people from Egypt and bring them out, okay? Moses comes back and says, well, how would they ever believe me? Why would they trust me? And he says, go and tell them this. And he says this in Ezekiel 3, verse 14, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Go back to them and say, the great I am, the one with whom you know, that's who has the power and authority to cause the people to leave Egypt. Go, Moses. And so what Jesus is doing is really sly here. So as he addresses the religious elite in this moment, back here in the trial, he references this I am, and he does it and using this great moment between him and Moses to show, I'm even greater than Moses, like, like, you think Moses is great, and Moses brought you the law, and I know you love the law, and you celebrate the law, but guess what? I'm the guy who told, Jesus, or told Moses the law. I'm the foundation. I'm the one who gave the law. This is who I am. And then the second thing that he quotes is from Psalm 110, this whole idea of sitting at the right hand in power. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand in power, and I will make your enemies your footstool. So this is Jesus, and I think this is like full Liam Neeson moment, okay? Has everyone seen Taken or seen the trailer for Taken, right? Like, I I feel like this is him saying, okay, you're going to come up against me? You're going to come up against the Savior of the world? He's like, well, let me me tell you this. I have a unique set of skills. (laughs) A, A set of skills that I've acquired over a long career. And I will find you. And I'm going to kill you. Right? Like, like Jesus, do you get what he's doing? He's literally piercing to their heart and saying, do you not realize I am the fulfillment of everything you've been waiting for? And I'm also not to be trifled with. You're going to do your thing, but listen, I'm coming back. 
I'm, I'm coming back. All the prophecy that you know by heart. I'm that guy. I'm not just that guy here and now. I'm that guy later on in Revelation where I come back and I reclaim my kingdom. And he's like, where have you missed me? Do you not realize you're about to kill the one person you've been waiting thousands of years for? Do you not realize that everything and all of your hopes for what is to come, you're about to try and destroy? Praise God, we know the rest of the story, and it is not thwarted by anything man could do. Let's keep going. Verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And son began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Okay. And so this claim of Christ to say, yeah, I'm that guy. This drives Caiaphas, the high priest, the chief priest, just absolutely crazy. And it says he tears his clothes, which you're kind of like, take it easy. But you think through, I, I was thinking through all the moments of just kind of that inner rage that maybe some of us have, and you just want to like hit something or tear something or break something. And you don't know where to put that anger. And so for Caiaphas, he rips his clothes. A buddy of mine was upset that his girlfriend wouldn't call him back, so he punched through a window, shattered his hand. That wasn't super smart. This guy, he tears his clothes because there's so much anger and angst and hurt in him. And it's crazy to me because in this moment, I, I believe his anger is real. I don't think Caiaphas is doing this to be shady or to be deceitful. I think he truly has just missed the mark. He's just missed Jesus. So angry with what it would mean if this guy truly were the Messiah. How much that would change his life, affect what he's thought for now, at this point, probably 60 years and he wasn't ready for it. And he wasn't ready to deal with this. Could you really be it? And so instead he just said, you know what? No, I'm gonna do my thing and let's just get rid of Jesus. And I would say this, man, I, I lived in that reality for quite some time, wrestling with these ideas in my own head of like, man, you know what? I don't wanna become a Christian. I, I don't wanna step into this because that means some things and I don't wanna give up that stuff. So I pushed him aside. And I think, I just want to, if there's, and there's always some of you here, and I love that, that we can be a place where hopefully those who don't know Christ and don't, don't adhere to our faith would be able to come and ask questions and sit and learn and enjoy your time here. But I want to just, I want to talk to you right now and just say, man, are you just pushing aside Christ? despite all the reality of him? Are you pushing him to the side because you just don't want to be confronted with what that might mean? Are, are you just thinking, man, you know what? I, I think it's true, but I just don't want him because I don't want to give up what I got now. And I would just say this to you this morning, that for generations and generations and generations, people in this world have done that. And they've missed out on knowing the Savior of the world who died for every sin you've ever committed. Every time you've ever hurt someone, 
every time you ever thought a certain thought, every time you were disrespectful to your parents, every time you did something that was against even your own conscience probably. That's what put him on the cross. And he's saying to you right now, like, this is who I, I am, the Christ, so come to me. And, and so I, I want to put that as explicitly as I can this morning. Don't be on that side. Give your life to Christ. It is not easy. It is, it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. In the actual outworking of it all, it's pretty tough. But it's really good. Because God is perfect. Okay. And I'll tell you what, as you kind of get into it, let me just try and set a clear expectation. And this, hey, listen, if you're in your Christian, that's your story. Man, let's, let's all listen to this. The expectation for us as Christians is a life that is fully sacrificed unto him. Romans 12 tells us that our lives are to be living sacrifice, that we lay it all down, that that is our act of worship to God. In response to the gospel, not because that makes God love you more. That's the expectation. Now there's some good news in the midst of that. And it's that Christ will always be coming. It's that Christ gave us his spirit, which is not a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. It is, it is not hard in the sense that we get to cast continually our burdens on Christ and take upon his yoke, which is easy. It's just sometimes a hard practice to learn what that looks like. But let me set expectations for myself, for you here who are Christians, and you here who are not. Loving Jesus means laying your life down because Christ lays his life down for us willingly. Okay. That's the first trial. That's the first trial, okay? Let's, uh, let's look at the second trial now. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself again still by the fire, she looked at him and said, you were also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Okay, it's one denial, one rooster crow. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Two denials, still just one rooster crowing. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he, get, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Three denials, two roosters crowing. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So, so Peter, again, not, not before any government official, okay, but before this mass who is against Christ is confronted with these questions. Are you one of them? Are, are, are you one of them? Do you follow him? Do you do the things that he does? Do you live the life that he lives? Are, are, you, are you one of his crew? Are you one of those, well, the way even, as they became to be known? Are, are you part of, of that group? Three times the opportunity to say, yeah, that's me, and I own it, and that's my God. And, and three times 
He says no. Not only does he say no, it's, I mean, he brings a curse upon himself. He denies it. He flat out lies. It's not just no, it's no with let me convince you no. And so we see this contrast between the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter. And I just guess where oftentimes we, we lay ourselves and where we need to find ourselves. The reality is, is man, we're in Peter's story far more often than Christ's. And this world is, is, is not often asking you. I don't know how often you guys will leave here today and you'll walk to lunch and you'll be hanging out or you'll go to work and someone's going to say, are you a Christian? And behind in their hearts is to kill you. I, I, I don't know how much of that exists in Flagstaff today. But, but it certainly exists. I mean, it, it's happening around our world, certainly. Okay. In, in fact, and I wasn't even going to share this story, but it's getting an email this week from a couple friends who work with the Jesus Film Project, okay? Getting another email from our friend Kate, who also got this email. That right now, we have friends in a city in the Middle East that ISIS has just taken over. And they're going door to door, and they're asking families if they are Christian families, and if they say yes, they're killing their children by beheading them. Okay. So this is happening in our world. There are people who are asking, are you a Christian? And if they say yes, then they die. We don't have that here. So man, it makes no sense that oftentimes we say no. And again, I don't know how many people are asking you guys, but I think maybe the world is asking as they strive for something better than what they know now. I think the world is, is, is dying for it, is longing for it when we see the divorce rate in our country, when we see the amount of kids who need homes to live in, when we see the broken education system, when we see on and on and on these atrocities that we talked about last week. I think that is them asking the church and Christian, where are you? I need help. Are you one of them? Because please come. And by our silence, we are denying Christ. By us not engaging and going to the world, going to the brokenness and saying, I've got this, how do I give it to you so that you might be raised up? No, Christ. When we don't do that, it is a denial of who he is. It's a denial of who you are. It is a denial of your identity, Christian. I do it all the time. I am as guilty as everyone in the room. Sometimes I'll engage, but sometimes I just enjoy sitting back and enjoying this sweet Christian life that I've carved out for myself. And that is denying the identity and the calling to which we've been identified and called. And so wake up. We need to wake up. And we need to, we need to get into the lives of people in our cities and in our country and in our worlds. And we need to start being the body of Christ. Okay. In Matthew 10, Matthew 10, or sorry, Matthew, yeah, Matthew 10, sorry. Verses 28 to 31. Uh, that's not the one I wanted. Nope, 32 and 33. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before, before my Father who is in heaven. There you go. 
that should kind of shake us up. Okay. Like, like if, that, if that doesn't do something for your heart. Like, if, if you acknowledge me before man, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. But if you deny me before man, I'm going to deny you before the Father. That, that should kind of at least elicit some emotion. That should be like, well, wait, well, wait, wait a minute. Like, where, so what am I doing? And, and we have to begin to ask that question. What does that mean for me to deny? What does that mean for me to affirm, to know, to say, no, I'm one of him? here's the gospel picture for us today. Because when I hear that verse, the reality for my heart is there's a momentary fear, if I'm honest, of like, dang it, you know, like if I'm either directly or indirectly denying him, is, is that mean? Am I, am I out? Like, like, did I get kicked out of the club all of a sudden? Because I'll go back. Where's that person? I, hey, man, no, I'm good. I'm with him. What, what, what do we getting out here. And I think in order for us to, on one hand, not lose the weight of what Christ has just told us here, that if you affirm me, I'll affirm you for the Father. If you deny me, I'll deny you. Not to lose the weight of that, but to also sit in the reality, the, verse, the two verses before that, where he says, and, I do not, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, for are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, so, so those, Jesus saying, listen, I am with you. That should scare you. Like there should be this bit of fear. It's like, man, this is the life I'm called to. The weight should not be lost on the Christian, but it should be, but he's with me. So as I go, I need not fear. For Christ, you are with me. For Christ, you provide every need. For Christ, you have given me your spirit who allows me to do the things you've called me to do, which is vast. To preach the gospel to the world, to go to the world, to care for the world, to, to understand that we have been blessed to be a blessing, to go and to be the best employee at your job, to go and be the best business owner of any business owner in the world that treats his people well. To be the best husband who treats his wife like she is more important than himself and vice versa. To be the best friend who, when someone else is in pain, goes and sits with them and cries and prays and hugs and sits and resources until they experience the joy of the Lord. This is what we're called to so we accept the weight of the verse, but also we celebrate because Christ is with his people. The juxtaposition, the final contrast between the trial of Christ and the trial of Peter is a great one for us because it acknowledges and it shows us that even in spite of our, our frequent denials, even in spite of our best efforts and then failures. Even in spite of the times where we just flat out say, not interested. That those who are in Christ because of the cross of Christ are saved. Christ knows exactly what Peter's doing. 
Christ is in there getting beaten and scourged and, and mocked and ridiculed. Meanwhile, outside, one of his closest, the man with whom he would build his church on, is denying his name. Christ knew what Peter would do, and yet he went to the cross anyway to save Peter, redeem Peter, lead Peter, that he would be a man after God's heart and a man that would change the landscape of the church and the world. And so we leave today not fearful, but celebratory. Because even though God knew every stupid thing I did this morning, I'll do this afternoon, I did 10 years ago, and I'll do 10 years from now, he still went to the cross, a blameless, innocent man, and took upon my sin and my shame and my brokenness that he could then give all of his righteousness and his goodness and his calling and his mission to the church and to the people of God, that we would carry the message that he started some 2,000 years ago to the world as it is today. Amen? I'm going to land with this last reading from Isaiah 53, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you guys to reflect, and I'll reflect, and we'll just see what it means for us to be the church as much as we can be the church. Isaiah 53, 7 through 11 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their sins. He shall bear their iniquities. Let's pray. God, we thank you because you just told us that it was your will to crush your own son because you hated sin you hated what it was doing to your creation and because you knew there was no other way God so it was your will to crush Christ that this moment this trial that we get to see and study today God was you knew all about it and I think You were grieving the whole time. As people placed on you falsity and sin that was not your own. God, and then you did not rescue Christ at the moment, but you continued to allow him to go. Christ, thank you for going. God, I I repent, I confess how frequently I forget maybe the most obvious part of the entire Bible, that you went and died a sinless man because I was a sinful one. God, thank you for taking upon my brokenness and giving me your righteousness. God, now I pray for myself and for our people. God, will we be led by that? Would that cause worship in the house this morning? God, would that cause, would that just cause all this response in the way that we take upon 
the calling and the expectation you've given to your people. God, Holy Spirit, we need you. Holy Spirit, please just bring about transformation, conviction. Your presence fill us with joy. We'd be so in love with you and the fact that we get to be with you and know you and make you known, God, that this is just something we cling to every day. But we need your help. If it's just mind games we're trying to play, then that will fail. If we just try and convince ourselves, we'll fail. God, we need you to move, to change us, transform us, and renew us. So God, bless us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, So now, as always, uh, we take time to reflect and and sit kind of underneath the word of God and just ask, man, what what does this mean for me? And, And I'd love for you to just sit and